Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and my guest for this episode is Kyle Jarrow, who wrote the book for the new musical SpongeBob SquarePants, which is based on the very popular animated TV series that has run on the Nickelodeon channel for the past 19 years. Hello, Kyle Jarrow. Welcome to Broadway Radio. Hello. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Now, some listeners will know spongebob and who he is but some won't and and even those who who do know uh spongebob won't know the story you've cooked up for him so for those newcomers could you describe who spongebob is and then give a brief setup of what the show is about Absolutely. So, Bob is uh, originally a cartoon character. He is a yellow sponge who lives in a pineapple under the sea. And if that sounds, you know, bizarre and surreal, it is. Uh, That is at the core of what SpongeBob and his world have always been. Absurdist, surreal, bizarro. He lives in a world of things that floated down to the bottom of the ocean from the surface above. And uh, we have brought him to Broadway um, and taken the characters from the cartoon show, which has been on the air for over 15 years. We've created an original show for Broadway. So the way that I like to describe the Broadway show is it's SpongeBob meets Armageddon meets <laughs> Our Town. <laughs> uh, it's, it, the story is about a town, Bikini Bottom. That's the name of the town where SpongeBob resides. They realize that a volcano on the outskirts of town is going to erupt, and when it erupts at sundown tomorrow, it is going to obliterate their home. So everyone responds differently. A lot of people panic. A lot of people um, take solace in different ways. Some join a cult. Uh, others decide they're going to exploit the situation to make as much money as they, ha- they can. Uh, and SpongeBob and a few of his friends decide that they're not going to give up on their home, and they're going to try to save it. And that kicks off what is a super bizarro uh, madcap romp about the end of the world. Um, And if you're wondering why Nickelodeon let us do a Broadway show about Apocalypse. I am. uh, I don't know, but God bless them um, (laughs) because we got to make the show we wanted to make. When did you come into the the process of of this, of creating uh, the show, and how did you come into it? Um, I think it was about five years ago, I think. And, uh, you know, they they had been working with director Tina Landau to... Uh, Nickelodeon had been working with director Tina Landau to kind of figure out what would the stage aesthetic show would be, sort mm-hmm. of what the look, what the feel would be. Um, but at that point, there was no story. They knew that they wanted an original story, so they set about to find a writer. Um, and I think that they interviewed a bunch of writers. All I know is my side of it, which was that, um, you know, they reached out to my agent and said, you know, is this something that Kyle might potentially be interested in? And I was, because I'm a huge fan of SpongeBob. So you knew about um, SpongeBob before they approached you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a little too old to have grown up with it, but when I was in college, um, 
I got into it with my roommates. We'd watch, you know, reruns, uh, and, you know, we really had a lot of fun with it um, and just loved the show. It, it There's a real, the humor works on a number of levels, you know? It's a show that was originally created for kids, but it has a huge adult fan base and definitely a lot of, you know, late night college viewers as well, you know? So... <laughs> Um, so I got into it then and was a big fan, and so I said, yeah, like, I'm super interested. Let's, uh, you know, let's take some meetings. And, you know, it was a process of meeting with a bunch of different folks at Nickelodeon, meeting with Tina, or pitching them my ideas uh, for sort of how to translate this really particular brand of humor to the stage and also what the story might be. Um, yeah, so then I was lucky enough to get hired, and then it was a process of figuring out what exactly the story would be. That's um, what I'm interested and, yeah. in. Did you guys come up with lots of different scenarios, or did you automatically go to Armageddon? Just let's go big. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we actually did have a couple of different ideas, but it was a pretty quick process of arriving at the yeah. And, you know, here's, here's the thought process that got us there. We knew that we needed to create a show that had stakes and an emotional underpinning, you know, that could sustain a two-hour-plus musical. Um, the TV show, there are 11-minute episodes. And in 11 minutes, you can really do small stories that center around a single idea. But to make an entire evening, you really need an emotional thrust you know, a real epic story. So thinking about stakes, I was kind of like, well, you know what? The thing that has the most stakes <laughs> ever would be the end of the world. So yes. why not? Um, and, you know, the other thing is SpongeBob, for those who don't know the character, other than being a yellow sponge, the other thing that really defines him is he has this relentless optimism. Yes. He is just always happy. No matter how awful things are, he sees the bright side. And so it felt really fun and funny to take a character like that and put him in literally the most awful situation possible and see how he would face it. So, you know, end of the world, I think we can all agree, is among the most awful situations possible. So, <laughs> yes. um, so that was the thought process. It gave us these huge stakes, um, and it gave us a really fun scenario to put this character in the middle of. Now, how important was it to include you know, phrases and tropes and other things that would be familiar from the show to its fans? Well, um, you know, it, it, it is important. And, and one of the things that I felt um, incredible, um, I don't want to say pressure, but incredible responsibility to do mm -hmm. was to make a show that fans would feel included in and excited about. I'm a fan myself, so right. it just, you know, I, I sort of thought a lot about, like, well, what would I want in the show? Um, and, and, you know, we call them Easter eggs is kind of how we talk about them internally. Easter eggs are these little lines or references um, to the TV show that you'll get if you're a big fan. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it, it, we thought a lot about how many of those Easter egg moments did we want? We always knew there needed to be some, and that number kind of increased and decreased as we worked on the show. Because the thing is, you want to create a show that is also welcoming to anyone, to, to folks who have never seen an episode in their lives. And I think we've 
I think that we have created that. But one of the ways we did that is you can't have too many Easter eggs because then you're sitting in an audience and all these people are laughing. And if you don't get it, you sort of feel left out. You can definitely have some moments like that. And there sure are. I'm sure that folks who don't know SpongeBob, there's probably like three or four moments where they're like, okay, everyone's laughing really hard around me. This is probably a reference that I don't get. But I wanted to make sure that most of those Easter egg moments were intrinsically funny, even if you didn't get the reference. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It felt important to include them, but it felt important that they be references for the most part that could work for anybody. Was it also as tricky to balance making it a kid's show and a show that would work for adults? It, It was... But it wasn't as hard as it could have been because the TV show, I think, gives a good template for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the humor, the uh, you know nonsensical, surrealist humor, the wordplay stuff that they've developed over all these years of making the TV show uh, really do work on those two levels. And so that was a pretty good roadmap. Now, obviously, you have to sort of adjust pace and things like that when you go from you know a cartoon to the stage so that was some work but i would say that in the tone and the kind of humor there already was that template that could work on two levels um the other thing that i really wanted to do was uh make sure that there were some adult themes that Mm -hmm. were woven into the story um and by by the way i when i say adult themes I, i guess i could sound like sexual themes that's that's not the case um I, I just mean things that would be, you know, adult concerns. There's a bunch of commentary on the media. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of commentary on how power can get abused by the government. There's even some commentary on religion. Um, there's some commentary on marriage uh, in the Plankton and Karen characters. So, you know, those are themes that I think probably go over kids' heads a little bit, but felt important to speak to. You know, and I think the other thing I should say is that all the stuff about the end of the world is is funny and whatnot, but there is a I think a serious theme at the at the core of this that we really wanted to explore, which is what happens to a society when people are afraid. You know, people can turn against each other. In this show, fish can turn against each other, but ultimately, when a society is threatened, that's when we should really come together as opposed to turning against each other. So, you know, that's, I, I would say, sadly, a very relevant theme right now. There's definitely some stuff in the show about how um, immigrants and outsiders can get scapegoated in times like that. So, you know, it felt important to speak to some of those more adult themes. And so I think that's something else uh, that, that has made the show work on a couple of different levels. You know, some of that stuff is going to go over kids' heads. None of it's inappropriate for kids, but, you know, some of it's going to go over their heads. But I think that's how you create a show that also has value, you know, to older, to older audiences. So, yeah, that felt really important. And I'm now rambling, but uh, for sure, we've <laughs> yeah. tried to do that. And I think, you know, I think we have. Like, I, I feel like... It, I think we've created a show that does work whether or not you know the source material. And I think it also works whether or not you're a kid um, or, you know, somebody any other age, really. Yeah. I also uh, detected um, some 
political commentary in there. There's talk about <laughs> fake news. There's the put down of science. There's some, as you say, discrimination uh, against or, or scapegoating of people who are not uh, indigenous to Bikini Bottom. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you guys started this five years ago. When did you start folding in the, let's call it what it is, the Trump stuff? You know, uh, what's crazy, um, a lot of that stuff was in there pre-Trump, believe it or not. Um, you know, it, it, it felt, when you're doing a story about the end of the world, it just, it felt um, like it made sense to explore how people react um, when they're operating from fear. And uh, and scapegoating and turning against immigrants. I mean, that's not new, right? Right. So unfortunately, a lot of those yeah. themes were are yeah. Unfortunately, exactly. So a lot of those themes were in there, and then Trump got elected. Frankly, the guy. I mean, his movement is based on on fear in drumming up fear in people. I, I don't think that's a super controversial statement. Um, I think a lot of his supporters would would probably not even totally disagree with that. Um, and so. Weirdly, you know, what's happening in the world sort of ended up meeting what's happening, what was already happening in the show, which is we've ended up in a really fear-based society at the moment with a a leadership that really stokes people's fear and and really engages in scapegoating. So, unfortunately, uh, some of those themes started feeling newly relevant. And so, yeah, there's a line here or there that I tweaked to bring out those resonances even more. But, you know, we first did the show in Chicago Mm -hmm. in the summer of 2016. So at that point, no one thought that, you know, Trump was kind of starting to look like a possibility, but it certainly wasn't clear it, it, I mean, it wasn't clear the guy would be elected until election night. So, so anyway, point being, yeah, we didn't rewrite it to match the moment very much. It sort of ended up being the right time to do it, um, which is weird. I don't know. Sometimes those serendipities happen with art and and life. That's true. Um, That's true. Per- personally, I would have, I would have preferred that they not. <laughs> but, but we're here, and you know, I hope that that. In a in a non-partisan way, that this show can speak to the moment that we're in, and hopefully make a really humanitarian point that it doesn't really matter if you're you know a Democrat or Republican. You know, I I, I think most people would agree that turning against innocent folks and scapegoating them for something that's really not their fault is not fair and is not something that we want to do as a society. So I think that that's a point that we can make in a compassionate, right. non-super political way. So yeah. I, I would hope just for the folks who are listening, I, I don't want them to think that the show is like an anti-Trump tirade. It's, so. it's not. Um, and I'm actually, not- I will say, by the way, somebody mm-hmm. tweeted the other day saying, a fan of the show, I saw this tweet where they were like, yeah, it, you know, it, there's a lot of anti-liberal messaging in the show. I will admit that is not at all how I intended it. But this person talked about some of the critiques of the media that are in the show. There's a there's a mm-hmm. newscaster character mm-hmm. who sort of gets really into riling up panic. 
And I think that this audience member really hooked into that and sort of read their politics into that. So it's interesting to me that, you know, folks have been able to find themselves reflected in the show on both sides of the spectrum. I, I guess maybe that's a good thing. So, yeah, it is. And um, I think they want to because so, it's, yeah. it's a fun show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch yeah. things up just a little bit because one of the things that's really interesting to me is that it's challenging for any book writer to collaborate with a composer or a composer and lyricist on a musical. But you had like 15 of them. <laughs> and you had some really big names like Cindy Lauper and John Legend and Sarah Bareilles because if people don't know, these folks and others were asked to create original songs for this show. And so I'm wondering, how did that process work? How did you work with all of these different people? It it all comes together, <laughs> but what did you do? How did this work? Um, well, you know, it uh, we weren't quite sure when we got into it. You know, it was an idea that seemed very exciting, and I'll tell you what, it's such an honor to get to work with such an array of talented people. But, you know, we weren't totally sure how it was going to work, and it, and it really did. And, and kind of the way that it worked um, in this case was that each of the artists, when they were approached – you know, they were given a sense of what their song would do in the story. They got an outline. In some cases, they even got um, script pages, depending on which point in the process they got involved. And, you know, a sense of, they were given a sense of, like, what the song should do, maybe even some lyric prompts, like, hey, this could be a cool metaphor to use in the song. Um, And then, you know, then they went off, and using that, uh, they wrote a draft of a song. And there was a little bit of back and forth, but, you know, it actually, in some ways, I think, was a little easier than some book writing processes. Because a lot of times, I think with musicals, songs are being written and then a book writer is sort of needing to write around them often. Right. In this case, we actually were able to know what the story would be and to really give that story to the songwriters so that they could write into the existing story. And as a result, I had to tell you, like, the songs turned out great. Not these first drafts that were really fit the story. And look, sometimes they'd be a little different than what I'd imagined, and then I'd rewrite a little bit to make the song fit in. Mm -hmm. But in general, there wasn't a ton of that. I think another reason that it worked pretty well is because all of the writers had familiarity with SpongeBob. You know, a lot of them were fans of the show. And certainly if they weren't, they could easily watch, you know, as many hours as they wanted. So tonally, I think the the songwriters kind of knew what we were looking for, you know, because of that. So I think that that was very helpful as well. And then honestly, our ace up the sleeve, I, I cannot take any credit for is Tom Kitt, who was our arranger and and music supervisor. And what he did is he took these amazing demos that these artists had made, and he then, you know, smoothed out the edges so that Mm -hmm. it felt like a cohesive score, but while also trying to preserve the individual sound of the artists. And he really worked with the artists to arrange those tunes to fit into the needs of the show. So I I, I think a lot of the... um, the achievement uh, and and praise should go to him. I mean, the guy's a genius, and he just, 
he found a way to take these disparate voices and keep them unique, but also have them fit into a score. And that is that is no small task. Um, You're yeah. a musician yourself, though, right? That's true. Yeah. So did that I'm a rock band? Right. So did that help in terms of knowing perhaps where an opening for a song should be? Did it help in terms of deciding? the mood of the song and which musician might be right for that particular moment? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, for sure, there's a lot of strategy um, between Tina and I talking about what is the sound that this moment in the story wants and who's the artist who would sort of give us that sound. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was a lot of strategy in that. I think being a musician helped. Um, In terms of choosing the moments for songs yeah I, I guess being being a musician helps with that too you know I write songs and I kind of know what is a good moment or what's an easy thing to write a song about and what's the harder thing to write a song about so I guess that's sort of helpful because I can get to a point in a story and think to myself okay like wh- what would I do if I had to write a song here would I feel like I knew how to do it and if the answer is yes then that's probably a pretty good moment to put a song so yeah, I think it's I think it is helpful when working on a musical, you know, whether you're the director, whether you're the book writer, um, even if you're in sort of a non-explicitly music department role. Right. I, I do think it is useful to have some musicianship, uh, just so you can understand how music interacts with the other elements. And Tina is uh, herself a musician. She's like an awesome piano player. So I know that that's something that she also brings to the process. It's just, you know, an understanding of, of you know, in general, how music can work. And I, I think that is really helpful and has served me well in this project and other projects that I've done that, that uh, you know, that include music. How involved were the folks at Nickelodeon in this development process of the show? Uh, very involved. You know, really really all the way to the top. Um, the president of Nickelodeon, um, Seema is her name, um, and she is awesome. And uh, she has come to multiple readings that we've done. Hmm. Uh, Seema Zargami, sorry, I forgot her last <laughs> name, and just looked it up. Um, so she's come to multiple workshops that we've done. Steve Hillenberg, who's the creator mm-hmm, of SpongeBob, mm-hmm, has mm-hmm. come to a bunch of different workshops. A bunch of the folks who work on the TV show have read drafts, have given thoughts and notes. And we've had uh, an amazing executive producer through Nickelodeon. Her name is Susan Vargo. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's really shepherded us through that whole process. So, yeah, I mean, it's been really uh, collaborative in that sense. But I will say this, it, it has been a really collaborative process in the truest way. There's been a lot of conversation and a lot of input from the Nickelodeon folks, but it's always been from a very artistic, like, okay, so this is what you want to do. Here's some thoughts that we have on that. Mm -hmm. Very much that's the spirit as opposed to like, okay, this is what it's going to be. And I'm sure that there are a lot of, you know, corporate-driven processes that are like that, and, and this just wasn't. So it's just, we've been incredibly lucky. Because also Nickelodeon's never done a Broadway musical before. Right. So 
you know, I think they really felt like this is going to be a creatively driven process, and that's what they pledged to Tina and I at the beginning of the process, and they totally did that. I mean, I know that sounds like cheesy to say, but it really has been a really uh, collaborative process. One other person I should shout out to is Doug Cohn, who's a VP at Nickelodeon for music, and he had a lot of relationships with um, a lot of the artists who wrote songs for us. So a lot of times the ask went through him, mm-hmm. and he was incredibly helpful too at helping us know like what artists are going to be excited about this and what's the best way to liaise with artists and you know get them to sort of understand what we want this to be um so yeah so he was he was really in the trenches with us too and is just awesome but again was always like okay what's your dream for this let me help you figure out what's the best way to do that dream and like what a great relationship to have with anybody right well i bet they're pretty happy because i think most people when they heard Spongebob Squarepants the musical sort of went really? And (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I have to say I was one of them and I think everyone that I've spoken to who's gone to see it has come out saying it was such fun you guys you guys got rid of all that skepticism so uh, it sounds as it was a it was a you know a fun process but a challenging process but but one that you you really uh brought off well thank you know what thank you and i have to say that you know, there are examples in in film, in television, on Broadway, of shows that are awesome that are based on huge IP. It's mm-hmm. totally doable. I mean, you know, I mean, Lion King would be a, a prime Broadway example. I mean, the show's great, you know, and True. there's totally a version of Lion King that would have been really cheesy and it's not at all and I, I to me the key is that you've just got to really love and embrace what the source material is and understand that it's there it's not just commerce like there's a reason that spongebob is so pop you know so powerful and resonant with so many people so i think for tina and i and and tom and, and everyone else that we worked with it was kind of like look we love this thing we want to honor that and make the awesomest version of it that we as fans would want. And I kind of think if that drives you and you have to have, you know, collaborators, in this case Nickelodeon, who are down to let it be cool. But if you have both of those elements, I think you can make something really great. So I, I feel that we have them. You know, I think, but it's like, honestly, we just always thought it could be cool. Um, I know that's so weird, but honestly, I, there's so many projects that so many people, including myself at, at times, have worked on where you're like, I don't know, like, this could be cool, but I don't know. And you kind of go into it doubting it. And I feel like you got to go into it being like, this is going to be awesome. And and that really is the attitude that we always took. And I think if you do that, like, a decent percent of the time, it will be awesome. That that is my that is my philosophy. I don't think I don't with, think SpongeBob right could have said it any better himself. <laughs> 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 thank you, awesome. thank you so much uh, uh, for doing this, Kyle. Yeah, my pleasure. It's really really nice talking to you. Thank you very much. Okay, and thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time. 
and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway Radio podcasts, which you can find on broadwayradio.com.